welcome to For What It's Worth. This is a special episode with Nuka, scientist and furry fandom expert, as recorded at Vancouver 2020. This is an updated version of our YouTube video about furry psychology and includes new material based on fur science's continuing research. We hope you enjoy it and encourage you to support fur science by taking surveys wherever they are conducting their latest research. Give me a second here, I gotta start my PowerPoints off properly. Yeah, I gotta make sure it's recording here. Record from beginning. Not narrations, please. Boom. Awesome. So, hello everyone. Um, welcome. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to decide if I should stand on stage or, or up front. I think I'll try to be more personable and stand out front with everyone here. Uh, I'm Nuka. Welcome to the talk. Uh, we only have one quarter of the screen, so you may have to squint or sit a little closer to it. But, uh, oh yeah, that's my reminder to put a funny joke, which I totally forgot to do. So, awesome. Uh, I think it's very appropriate with it snowing outside that we have uh, our, our weather report here, furries. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So my talk, typically, I, I have a very clever pun to start off my talk with. I don't this year because last year I used puns and everyone booed and hated them. So you don't get puns, you get uh, clickbait. So our title and the sort of theme of this talk today is 50 crazy facts about furries. Uh, number 28 will totally blow your mind. So. Oh God, I'm losing him again. It's last year all over again. Bring back the puns. <laughs> Bring back the puns. I'm, I'm collecting valuable data right now is what I'm doing. All right, furries hate puns. And I should remind everyone at this point that this research is paid for by the government of Canada. So your, your tax dollars hard at work. All right, so uh, we did, by the way, ask a whole bunch of furries who follow us on uh, for science. Uh, we did ask them to help us come up with numbers to help making the counting more interesting. So here we have number one. Uh, so number one, real scientists, believe it or not, are actually studying furries. Uh, most of them are working with us at the, uh, our team First Science. So we have uh, a number of doctors on the team. We have Dr. Elizabeth Fine, Dr. Kathleen Gerbasi, Dr. Stephen Rayson, Dr. Sharon Roberts, and then of course uh, me, Dr. Courtney Plant. Uh, these are my furry credentials right here. So I was a furry before I was a psychologist, but now I am uh, both. So I do social psychology and I uh, go to furry conventions for funsies. And uh, as a team, for science, our little organization, uh, we study furries. That's kind of our, our job. That's our bread and butter. So the data we're talking about isn't just uh, we talked to a half dozen furries in a bar one time. We're talking about data. Uh, this is a little bit out of date now. It's about 35,000 furries to date that we've studied from more than 70 countries around the world. Um, we publish in peer-reviewed scientific journals. So this is legitimate science being published in legitimate scientific journals. Um, it's, it's actual data, a lot of it. I, um, just in the last month alone, I entered 2,700 surveys from Anthrocon and Euroferns last year. So I'm kind of dated out for a while, uh, which is why it's more fun to get to present this data at talks. Uh, but the short version is yes, lots and lots of furries for these results. So this is arguably the best data set you'll find on furries uh, on the planet. So uh, I, I feel pretty confident saying that what we're saying here is about the best data you're going to find on furries. And uh, we run and maintain a website called First Science. Uh, you can follow us at uh, at First Science on, on the Twitterverse. 
And uh, we make all this data available to furries. So if you ever want to win internet arguments or you want to uh, be able to pull up any of the data from this talk, it'll all be there. Uh, and a shameless plug for our book, First Science, which you can also download for free uh, at our website. And uh, the, the doctors involved that I've mentioned aren't the only ones studying furries around the world. So recently, uh, we've gotten in touch with a few uh, folks who've been helping us collect data from around the world. So if you've seen one of my talks before, we're going to have a whole bunch of new international data thanks to these folks. Uh, Mikhail Dmitrievich Danilov, I hope I didn't butcher that too bad. Um, but he has been helping us uh, collect Russian furry samples. So he's over at uh, Belarusian State University. Uh, we also have uh, Gao, who's been helping us collect a sample down in Southeast Asia. And so this is where we've been uh, getting samples that we can compare our samples to. So we can see what do furries around the world look like and how do they compare to furries from North America. So let's get to the, the exciting hot data that you're all here to see. Number two, so see they, the, the, the task was to have them put a number, a number somewhere in their picture and I thought it was very clever how some of them did it. So number, fun fact number two, uh, furries, believe it or not, are fans. First and foremost, they are fans of things. Uh, in the same way that a Harry Potter fan is a fan of Harry Potter, a Star Trek fan is a fan of Star Trek, furries are fans specifically of media that features anthropomorphized animal characters. So critters that walk and talk and do human things. And uh, you might think, well, hold on, my grandmother watched that Zootopia movie. She thought it was kind of good. Does that mean my grandmother is a furry? Uh, no, although that would be amazing. Um, it's not just enough to like this stuff. I might go to a hockey game once and like it, but that doesn't make me a hockey fan. What makes you uh, a fan, or in this case, what makes you a furry, is you like this stuff enough that it's a part of who you are. You become this, this fan identity. So the idea is if you like it enough that it tells people about the kind of person you are and who you hang out with, then you're probably a furry. But if you just like a particular show, that doesn't necessarily make you uh, a furry. We have a lot of people who are very concerned about, uh, oh no, I don't want to be one of those furries. Um, we tend to use it as a label that you ascribe to yourself. So if you wouldn't use the label to describe yourself, don't worry, you're probably not a furry. Uh, number three, cute pictures here, number three. Uh, furry media, when we say that furries are fans of furry media, what the heck does that mean? Um, and a lot of people, sort of the default answer is, oh, it's, it's Disney stuff, right? Mickey Mouse, Bugs Bunny. And to be sure, there's something to that idea. When we asked furries, what is the number one thing that got you interested in furry media? We see that Disney's number eight on that list. So Disney is responsible for more furries than, than most other things on the planet. So, uh, you know, for most of us, depending on what time you got into the Phantom, you can probably blame at least one Disney film for the transformation. And I, for one, welcome our new uh, Disney overlords. And you can see, depending on where you go in the world, this holds true as well. So these are what got people into the Phantom in different parts of the world. And you can see here, for example, in Malaysia, um, they have uh, Looney Tunes down there. It's one of the big influences, even in Malaysia. In Taiwan, you had Zootopia was very popular in getting folks into the Phantom. In Thailand, you can see, again, Zootopia. In Japan, Balto was very instrumental. So depending on where you go, you see Disney's influence. So Disney certainly plays a role in helping inspire a lot of furries to become furry. However, it would be a misconception to say that uh, furries only look at Disney media because uh, if you wander around a, a dealer's den for more than five minutes, you start to realize that furries do a whole lot more uh, than just talk about Disney films. 
right? So uh, some of you probably recognize some of these. Some of you have a favorite furry video game, furry television show. Uh, I'm not subtle about the fact that mine is Night in the Woods. Night in the Woods is near and dear to my heart. So yeah, got a couple of Night in the Woods fans. And you can see um, around the world when you ask the question, why do you like furry media? What is it about furry media? Uh, depending on what you're asking, you're going to get slightly different answers, but certain things permeate, right? So cuteness seems to permeate. Regardless of where you go in the world, furry critters are kind of cute, and that's one of the big draws to it. Um, the characters are appealing. It's very creative. I love animals. These different things tend to be quite prominent in what gets people into liking furry media in the first place. You'll notice Japan mentioned sexual appeal there. We'll come back to Japan in a little bit because Japan actually stands out from some of our other samples in a lot of really noticeable ways. So we'll uh, point to some of these as we go along. Uh, fun fact number four. Uh, furries, bronies, not quite the same thing. There's some overlap there, but uh, not quite the same thing. Uh, as a person who studies the brony fandom as well, I'm often confronted with bronies who are like, oh god, am I a furry? Right? Or furries who have these identity crises. They say, well, I like My Little Pony. Does that make me a furry or a brony? Which one am I? And uh, I guess our argument is that they overlap, but they're not quite the same thing. For those who don't know, bronies are adult fans of My Little Pony. Um, and there's some overlap between them. Uh, younger folks may not remember this, but there was a time six or seven years ago in the fandom where uh, if you liked My Little Pony, uh, one third of the fandom hated you for it. Uh, that's certainly not the case these days. Uh, we do find when we sample furries that about 10 to 20% of them are bronies. And in the reverse direction, when you study bronies, about 20 to 25% of them are furries. So there's definitely some, some overlap between those two groups. Um, what's interesting to us is that with the, the show My Little Pony ending, bronies around the world uh, lamenting that the show is ending, there's this interesting phenomenon where all these bronies now are trying to, trying to find a place to fit in, right? Their, their fandom is kind of coming to an end. So if only there's a place they could go where there's like these norms of acceptance and inclusivity, where they can go and, and be a part of a group, and, and maybe someday they'll find that group. I, I don't know where. Uh, just for my bronies in the audience here, uh, we've scientifically shown that among all the different characters, uh, Luna and Twilight Sparkle are by far the fan favorites, so these are scientifically best pony. Uh, sorry, Rarity fans. Rarity's further down that list. Uh, and again, shameless plug, this is uh, a book we happen to publish based on our brony research, so if you're really nerdy and want to read a book about that, you can do that as well. Uh, fun, crazy fact number five, uh, furries get really immersed into stories, especially when you have furry characters in them. Take a story and make it furry, and furries will like it all the more. So there's actually ways to measure immersion and getting drawn into uh, stories. And as it turns out, when you ask furries, how immersed they get into furry media versus non-furry media, they tend to report getting more sucked into, more transported into furry-themed media. Basically, slap some ears and a tail on it, and furries find it all the more interesting, more compelling. Uh, and in part, because you make it more personally relevant to them. Because uh, furry media is so near and dear to their hearts, as soon as you make characters that are furry, they identify more with them, and they get more sucked into the story. It's more personally relevant to them. Uh, crazy fun fact number six, uh, furries are influenced by the media they consume. Not only do they like this media and get sucked into it, but it changes the way they think and feel and behave. So we know, for example, research on violent media shows that if you play lots and lots of violent video games and you watch lots and lots of violent films, you become a slightly more aggressive person. 
Um, we've also shown the reverse is true. We've shown that, well, what happens if you watch nothing but a bunch of My Little Pony? Does that change the way you think and feel and behave? And the answer is, yeah, kind of. This is an actual published scientific article from a few years ago that I am very proud of, uh, in part because the title of it is Letters from Equestria, which uh, I love having as a title of a scientific paper. Uh, and it starts off, I fought tooth and nail with the editor so that the first words of this published scientific paper were, Dear Princess Celestia, today I learned a great lesson about friendship. So, uh, hashtag career goals. Uh, but what this article showed was that uh, essentially the more you view this, this pro-social content, much of furry media is pro-social, it has these positive messages in it, and the more you're exposed to that kind of content, um, the more empathy these folks develop, and the more empathy they have, the more uh, it helps them to become better at things like charity, better at helping those who are in need. So sure enough, we found in this sample that those who watched more My Little Pony also tended to be more empathic as a person, they tended to donate blood and to um, donate time and money to charity. So there's an idea that uh, we are uh, affected by the media that we consume, for better and for worse. Uh, so I get to use the excuse that I'm watching this stuff for my job. You can use the excuse that it's making you a better person. So you're welcome. Uh, fun fact number seven. Uh, furries have a very active imagination. They're very big on fantasy. But it's healthy. It tends to be fairly functional, fairly adaptive. So uh, we published a paper a few years ago on this subject. And what I did in this paper was try to distinguish healthy forms of fantasy from unhealthy fantasy. So you can probably think of examples of both. Healthy fantasy is you're, you're drawing, you're self-expressing, there's a part of you that you're putting into this piece of media. Um, pathological or harmful fantasy is the, I have to pay rent next month, I can't afford to, so I'm just gonna play World of Warcraft and pretend that's not a problem. That kind of escapism, really extreme, this is actually hurting you to engage in this kind of fantasy. So we've measured both in furries, and what we find is that compared to non-furries, furries engage in a lot more of this healthy kind of fantasy. They have very active fantasy lives, and it tends to be of this more healthy, positive, self-expressive flavor of uh, fantasizing. When it comes to this pathological type of fantasy, the losing touch with reality, the uh, I'm, I'm not going to work because I'm lost in my fantasy worlds. Furries really don't score any higher than the general population on that kind of fantasy. So yeah, furries have more active imaginations and fantasy lives, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence that that's causing them any kind of dysfunction. They're not losing touch with reality, so to speak. Um, we've also been asked, when furries anthropomorphize, they're really big into anthropomorphizing animals, how specific is it to just animals? Right? So is it, are they just seeing faces in everything around them in the world? Uh, and the answer is no, they're not. Uh, you see that they largely anthropomorphize pets and animals and domestic animals, uh, occasionally computer players and stuff, plushies. But as you go down the list, they're not you know, seeing faces in their food. They're not seeing faces and talking to their, their bedrooms or their buildings. So it really does seem to be quite specific to anthropomorphizing animals and, and media characters that are anthropomorphic animals. Uh, so crazy fact number eight. I love, by the way, that we had fursuiters from around the world uh, take us up and help us with this. So you see a lot of really cool fursuits from around the world here. Uh, but number eight. Uh, most furries have a fursona, a fursona being this uh, anthropomorphized animal representation of yourself. 
So there are some famous ones in the furry fandom. Some of you may be familiar with Boozy Badger, a lawyer who the, uh, the furry fandom kind of adopted and gave a, uh, a persona to. So there's Boozy Badger. That's, uh, that's me right there. So that's my walking, talking animal representation of myself. Um, furries are quite creative in how they develop their personas, sometimes with, with horrible, horrible results. Uh, but we can appreciate the creativity of this fandom nonetheless. And personas really are the glue that kind of hold this fandom together. If there's one thing that we all do, it's create a persona to represent ourselves. So you'll see here, this data suggests that at least 95% of furries uh, have had at least one persona over the course of their life. So this is virtually every furry at some point develops a persona. We also tend to find here that most furries at any given time have one persona. Right, so it's relatively rare to have two or more personas, although not completely unheard of. For furries who've had more than one persona over the course of their life, um, it's not the case that you wake up and decide, today I'm a cat, tomorrow I'm a dog, next week I'm a fox. Usually when they do change their persona species, it's in a slow, gradual fashion. You might decide after five years that maybe that wolf persona you originally created really doesn't represent you anymore. But they tend to change quite gradually. Uh, we see that around the world, again, personas tend to be pretty popular. So in uh, Malaysia and Taiwan and Thailand, you're seeing that between 75 and 90% of furries in these countries have a persona. And again, Japan's kind of the odd one out, with only about 28% of furries in Japan saying that they have a persona. So it suggests that there might be something culturally different about the furry fandom in Japan that's different from in Western countries. Uh, fun fact number nine, uh, personas are incredibly meaningful for most furries. For most furries, their persona wasn't just a choice you woke up and decided uh, being a cat would be fun. There's a lot more that they put into their personas. And I'm seeing some nods around the room. Some of you are recognizing that your own persona is quite significant, quite important for you. We find, for example, that on a scale from my persona is completely different from my persona is completely identical to me, furries overwhelmingly say their persona represents who they are as a person, right? So case in point here, we have uh, Violent J from the Insane Clown Posse and uh, his fursuits, which represents his fursona, not a far cry from the man himself. If you don't know, he, he wins the Father of the Year Award because uh, his daughter was a furry and, and he took his daughter to a furry convention and really supported her in that. So uh, give mad props to him for that. Uh, you can see too around the world, the same trend, regardless of what country we're in, with the exception of Japan, furries tend to say their personas are very similar, almost identical to who they are as a person. So furries put a lot of themselves into these personas they create. Uh, fun fact number 10. Um, when furries create these personas, they tend to be like me, but a better version of me. So they tend to create personas that are better, more likable, funnier, uh, more, more honest, more, more attractive-looking versions of themselves. So we can see here, when we ask furries, hey, is your persona a better version of you, a worse version of you? Uh, higher numbers mean more agreement. We tend to say that uh, for the blue bars, is your persona an idealized version of you? Furries are pretty over here. And when we ask, hey, are, is your persona a worse version of you? You see that furries overwhelmingly say, no, 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 it's, it's a better version of me. So it seems to suggest that furries are creating these characters that are idealized versions of who they are. Again, very similar to other countries. Even Japan is on board with this idea 
that uh, to what extent is your fursona an idealized version of you? And around the world, furries are creating fursonas that are better versions of them. So number 11 um, is this idea that some furries will borrow, strategically borrow or take elements of other people's fursonas uh, and put them into their own fursona. So we've asked about this, this idea of poaching ideas from other fursonas. Does it happen and are furries okay with it? And what we found uh, when we asked furries, do you think that uh, you should not base your fursona on some other person's fursona species? And furries said no. I disagree with that idea. Furries are pretty okay with taking the inspiration for your fursona from some other existing fursona species. Furries seem to be remarkably okay with that idea. Uh, when we ask specifically, is it okay to take elements from another fursona and roll them into your own, furries are largely okay with that idea as well. When we asked furries, um, would you be flattered if someone were to look at your fursona and say, that's cool. I want to take parts of your fursona and put them into mine. Furries pretty overwhelmingly say, yeah, that'd be cool. I'd be flattered. I'd, I'd be honored that someone wants to take some part of my fursona and make it theirs. Um, when we asked furries if they personally borrowed elements, most furries said no. So most furries are okay with the idea, even if they don't do it themselves. Uh, number 12, uh, furries are not therians. So this is a distinction in terminology that we often have to make because people, especially people in the media, often treat these terms as if they mean the same thing, and they don't. Uh, furries do not believe they are animals, although sometimes furries kind of uh, act a little bit more like animals than perhaps they care to admit. Uh, so to be clear, the definition of furry is a person with an interest in media that features anthropomorphic animal characters. A therian refers specifically to a person who identifies as a non-human animal. So it's not, uh, it's fun to put on a cat suit, it's, no, 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 I'm a cat. There's something about me, spiritually, psychologically, there's something about me that is not entirely human. That's kind of the definition uh, of therianthropy that we tend to use and that a, thought, a lot of therians will use. And so, it's incorrect to say that furries are therians, that all furries want to be animals. In fact, only about 7% of furries would fall into this category of being uh, therians, of thinking that they are non-human animals. So it's kind of like this overlap right here, and there's a small sliver in the middle of people who come to furry conventions and would call themselves furry, but they're also therians. And if you want to see a big difference in why it matters which term we're using, when we ask the question on a survey, do you ever feel not 100% human? Uh, furries, when you ask that, about 35% will say, yeah, I, I had a bit too much to drink last night, so maybe I don't feel entirely human today. Um, therians, on the other hand, overwhelmingly say, no, 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 I don't, I don't feel entirely human. Right? So um, inevitably, whenever I give this talk, I usually have someone come up to me and say, I didn't even realize there was a name for that. Right? So there's a lot of people who are calling themselves furries who might be more accurately described as therians. Uh, number 13. Uh, no, therians are not making it up. Whenever I tell people about therians, often the response is, are these people who are just making it up for attention? Like, oh yeah, sure, you totally think you have the spirit of an animal trapped in a human's body. And the answer is no, this isn't something they're making up for attention. This is right down at the level of how their mind is working. Uh, therians often overlap the concept of self with the concept of non-human animal. So we've actually done and published in a scientific article um, reaction time data looking at 
um, patterns of reaction times that furries and therians make on, on identifying words. A word will come up and they have to decide is that uh, an animal or a human and then uh, a word will come up and they have to decide does this word describe me or some other person and they do this over and over and over again and they make a very particular set of mistakes. We can actually measure the reaction times on these tasks and what we find is that for Therians it's really looking like the concept of me overlaps with the concept of non-human animals. So when you activate one, you're also kind of activating the other concepts. So in Therians, at some very fundamental level, their sense of self, their sense of who they are, is caught up in non-human animals. One activates the other in a way that you don't tend to see with furries. So right down at the level of how their brains are working, we're noticing differences between furries and Therians, suggesting this isn't just something they're saying for attention, like some people accuse them of. So number 14, uh, fursonas uh, tends to be anthropomorphic animals, not real animals. Remember, furries are fans of animals that walk and talk and do human things. So it makes sense that your fursona would tend to be a walking, talking animal, not just an animal. So we've asked people, is your fursona completely feral? Is it just a dog? versus is it a completely anthropomorphized dog? And we tend to find that overwhelmingly, furries tend to say that they are anthropomorphized animals. So there's not a lot of furries running around who are just, just a dog, just a cat. Usually it's a cat or a dog or a wolf with some kind of human traits imbued into them. Uh, number 15, fun fact number 15, uh, wolves and foxes, the most popular fursona species, year in and year out, uh, furries tell us what their fursona species is, and I've wound up with this giant database with more uh, fursona species than I ever thought I would have to uh, deal with. And, and furry, when you give furries a blank line, they get very creative. Uh, we've had to add a column for baked goods, we've had to add a column for plants, we've had to add a column for inanimate objects. Um, so furries definitely, and then, and then people complain, they say, oh, well, you know, you, you, you're lumping these two things together, taxonomically that doesn't work. I'm like, I have to have a baked goods column. This is the furthest thing from my mind, where to, whether I lump together the rats and the mice or not. But anyways, uh, according to this, everyone wants to be a wolf, right? So the most popular species by far in the fandom is wolf, followed closely uh, by foxes. Then we have dogs and dragons and mythical creatures kind of lumped together. Uh, as a cat, I'm pretty okay with cats being pretty high on that list. And my research assistant, Kaylee, not so happy with how low rabbits are on that list. Um, and this isn't just North American either. When you go around the world, uh, wherever you go in the world, if you're a wolf fursona, you can be pretty sure that you will be among the most popular of the species. So Malaysia, Taiwan, Thailand, Japan, wolves, all the number one fursona species. Uh, in these countries. You can also see some variation of dogs, cats, foxes, and dragons in these countries as well. So the same handful of species seems to be rising to the top in terms of popularity, regardless of where you go in the world. And people ask, well, why? What is it about dogs and foxes and wolves and dragons that make people flock to them? And I would argue that at least a part of that has to do with the media that we consume and the first-hand experience that we have. So when you think about media, what kinds of animals you see commonly in the media, we tend to see wolves and foxes and rabbits and dogs and cats very often in the media we consume. Dragons can be found in legends and stories around the world. So it makes sense that regardless of where you go, people have heard stories about and been inspired by dragons. And of course, 
First-hand experience matters. Many North Americans have had a dog. Many North Americans have had a cat or can appreciate uh, the amazingness of a cat. And so from this first-hand experience, you also form attachment to animals. So this is at least some of the reasons why certain species tend to pop up as being the ones that furries choose the most often. Um, we'd asked furries whether or not they get annoyed when certain species become very trendy or very popular. Looking at you, Dutch Angel Dragons. Uh, and soon to be replaced, I would argue, by the, the protogens, also looking at you. Um, but there's this idea that some people have, that, oh, certain species need to be avoided, or oh, they're too popular. When you actually ask furries, furries don't really care, right? If it's popular, who cares? Enjoy it, have fun with it. Um, despite yeah, the handful of naysayers for species like the Dutch angel dragon, furries tend to be largely on top of it, right? Pretty okay with it. Whatever you like, you know, power to you. Uh, fun fact, number 16. Uh, there are stereotypes that exist about different species in this fandom. So we're going to go there. We're going to talk about some of these stereotypes and misconceptions people have about different species. Uh, so we've actually asked around about different species. We said, what, what terms come to mind when you think about wolves and foxes and dragons? And it's pretty predictable what we find. So when we ask people, loyalty tends to be the defining feature of wolves. That's the stereotype that's the most dominant about wolves. Uh, for foxes, we have being sly and cunning and smart and clever. That tends to be the stereotype of a, of a fox. For dragons, it's all about power, being strong, being powerful. Um, for cats, I'm kind of ashamed to be a cat in this slide because uh, cats are all about laziness. I mean, I'm not... Yeah, I, I'm not saying it's wrong, I just resent it. Uh, dogs, you know, press F to pay respects for Seymour. Yeah. Uh, dogs, also about loyalty, uh, very much like wolves. Uh, rabbits tend to be, the stereotype is that rabbits are shy and timid. Uh, otters are pretty one-dimensional. Otters apparently are all about having fun. So. Now these are the stereotypes that exist. The question is, is there any truth to it? Do they actually hold water? Do people who pick wolf personas actually define themselves as a more uh, 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 loyal person? And so we've tested that in another survey. We asked people a whole bunch of words. How much do each of these words describe you? And we asked them that before we even asked them about their fursona to avoid putting them in that mindset. And what we found was that there was some truth to some of the stereotypes, but some of them didn't really hold water. So some of the predictable ones that did seem to hold water uh, was that dogs and wolves were more loyal. People who choose those as their fursona species would also describe themselves as being a more loyal person. Uh, foxes did tend to describe themselves as more sly. Uh, bears and wolves, species that are associated with strength, those people tended to describe themselves as being a strong person. Uh, foxes and bears tend to be associated with being male, and we found some of that. Whereas cats were more likely to be uh, self-identified women. Right? So there tends to be that some idea that some of the species tend to be a little more towards one gender or another. But there were also a few stereotypes that kind of came out of left field or surprised us. Uh, so, for example, there is that stereotype that foxes are among the most promiscuous of the species in the fandom. Not true in the fandom, as it turns out wolves are actually the most uh, <laughs> promiscuous of the species. So we're, we're shooting down stereotypes here. 
Uh, part of it has to do with the fact that dogs are also more likely uh, to be in long-term relationships, and people who are in relationships tend to have more active sex life. Uh, we also tend to find that, if anything, rabbits were not the most shy species, foxes were. A little bit surprising, a lot of folks don't expect that. So I guess the idea is that these stereotypes exist, there's some truth to some of them, but others just don't hold water when you, when you sort of dig down deeper. So number 17, uh, furries are not speciesists for the most part. For the most part, furries don't judge one another on the basis of their fursona species. So we've asked furries in our studies, hey, if you found out someone was a cat or a dog or a wolf, would you treat them any differently for that? And what you see here with the uh, blue bars, furries overwhelmingly said no, right? If you're a wolf, that's not gonna change the way I treat you. If you're a cat, not gonna change the way I treat you. However, if you look at the red and green bars, furries do agree that, but knowing that you're a wolf tells me something about you. I wouldn't treat you differently for it, but now that I know you're a wolf, or now that I know you're a cat, I have a better understanding of the kind of person you are. And if you know that I'm a cat, you have a better understanding of the kind of person I am. So furries do believe that species matters, even if they don't consciously choose and, and pick who to hang out with based on those species. Number 18, uh, most furries do not own a fursuit. This is uh, uh, important because the media often gets this one wrong. Just to make sure we're on the same page, we've all seen fursuits. They're these mascot style costumes you see running around. Um, there are some famous ones in the fandom, depending on where you go. Certain fursuits or fursuit species are very uh, popular. Uh, in other places, fursuits get a little bit weirder. Uh, I have no idea what that is, but I love it. Some kind of dolphin robot hybrid. Um, but furries are a very creative bunch. Um, but I want to talk about fursuits because the media certainly loves to talk about fursuits. Uh, in most stories about furries, the media likes to say furries are people who wear fursuits. And this is uh, wrong when you look at the data. So the data suggests that um, depending on the sample you're looking at, between 20 and 30% of furries owns a fursuit which means that most furries do not own a fursuit. So defining furries as people who wear fursuits is sort of like defining sports fans as people who own sports jerseys. You can be a, a Vancouver Canucks fan without slapping on a Vancouver Canucks jersey, right? You can go to the games and, and, and root for your favorite player without owning a jersey. Likewise, you can be a furry without owning a fursuit. It's not like the fursuits are the real furries and the, the people who don't have fursuits aren't real furries or something. That's not, not how it works. We also find that uh, a lot of furries have thought about building fursuits. About 8% of furries have tried their hands at making fursuits themselves. Uh, one of the reasons why we think the media focuses so much on fursuits uh, is for the same reason why, if I say a Star Trek fan, you picture a person wearing a Starfleet uniform. Right? It's the most iconic, visually recognizable parts of this fandom. So if I were to take a picture of this room right now and say, you know, what is this a group of? Uh, you know, one or two fursuits aside, people would say they just look like average people, right? These, these, you know, I don't know what they are. So when people think of furries, they think of fursuits because that's the most iconic part of the fandom, but it's certainly not a defining feature of the fandom. You can be furry without owning a fursuit, and in fact, most furries are. Number 19. Uh, fursuiters are a little bit different than non-fursuiters, though. There are some uh, occasions, some ways that fursuiters are measurably different from furries who do not own fursuits. 
one of the things we find is that in general, fursuiters tend to call themselves somewhat more furry than non-suiters. This doesn't mean that putting on a fursuit makes you more furry. What it means is that if you are more furry, you're more likely to get a fursuit. But if you're only sort of casual furry, uh, you're not going to drop $2,000 on a fursuit. Right? So uh, it tends to be the case that uh, if you're more furry, you're more likely to get a fursuit, but fursuit doesn't make you more of a furry. We tend to find that women are actually more likely to fursuit than men are, proportionately. Right? So it's something that's, that women tend to like to do more than men do. Uh, fursuiters tend to have more active imaginations, more active fantasy and creative lives. So furries in general are already a pretty high fantasy, high imagination group. Fursuiters, even more so, are high in that positive fantasy engagement. Um, we're going to talk about sexual misconceptions later on in the fandom, but I want to introduce this idea right now, this idea that, oh, furry is all about putting on fursuits and doing stuff in them. Uh, actually, people who own fursuits are less likely to say that the furry fandom is a fetish for them. So that kind of shoots down that idea that having a fursuit is all about doing things in the fursuit. Nothing wrong with that if that's what you're into, but it doesn't seem to be the case that that's what most furries with fursuits are into. Uh, fursuiters drink more, and, uh, and I'm not talking about water in this case. Fursuiters drink a lot more, about 50% more alcohol than non-suiters do. I don't know if it's just that fursuiters go to more parties, um, but yeah, they do drink more alcohol, and just another reason to stay hydrated, kids. Um, we also find that fursuiters tend to have a lot more problems than non-fursuiters do interacting with people outside of their fursuit. So they often say that their fursuit is a way for them to break out of their shell and be more social and be more outgoing um, than they would otherwise get a chance to do in their day-to-day -day life. Number 20, fun fact number 20, uh, furries have an uncanny special ability. Right? This is a little bit tricky to explain. Um, but what do you see when you see these pictures right here? What do you, what do, what do furries see? Sorry, what? You? Eight different characters, right? You all recognize these are not eight pictures of the exact same character. And these are, these are distinct characters, distinct uh, builders, distinct, distinct species. What's interesting to note is that a lot of folks who aren't furries kind of see these and say, well, they're all sort of the same thing, aren't they? Uh, as an anecdote for this, my father is one of those car people. He builds cars and loves cars. And he's one of those folks, when a car drives by, he can tell you in an instant the make of the, of the car or the stats of the car. I see a box on wheels, right? But he knows all, through his experience with cars, he's learned all this little nuance and subtlety. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is because a few years ago, someone had asked us, uh, are furries people who are bad at recognizing human faces? Are they drawn to animal characters because they have some kind of face blindness or they're, they're crap at recognizing human faces? And we thought, that's testable. So we actually published this in a scientific journal article. We pitted furries up against non-furry college students and we gave them a test. Here's a whole bunch of faces rapid fire. Sometimes they were furry faces, sometimes they were human faces, sometimes they were fursuit faces. And they had to do a memory test. How many of these faces do you recognize? How many can you, can you keep track of and distinguish between? And what we found was that when it comes to human faces, furries were pretty much spot on which co with college students. So furries weren't bad at recognizing human faces. They were just freakishly good 
at recognizing fursuit faces and furry faces. Right? So no, furries are not face blind to humans, they just have a particularly weird and eccentric uh, uh, knowledge of something very specific. Right? So a furry can look and tell the difference between a fox and a wolf fursuit, whereas uh, a non-furry might say, well, it's some general fuzzy character, I don't know. Hailing Frequencies Open, Smokescale Aquatus here with another round of news for you. As of Thursday, March 5th, here are your space headlines. Since it's been a little while and a lot's happened, I'm going to do a quick SpaceX lightning round because they've done quite a lot, then a couple of other stories. SpaceX launched yet another batch of Starlink satellites as well as announced the potential to start launching paying customers, tourists, into space on board Dragon 2 in 2021 or 2022. After that, they were tapped by NASA to use Falcon Heavy to launch a probe to an asteroid that's mostly metal. This is so we can study what makes up a planet's core. Then they swapped out an upper stage on an upcoming mission because of a faulty valve, and it's just faster to use another upper stage than to try to fix that one and then use it for the launch. Don't worry, that other one will see use later on. And then the big news, another test article of Starship exploded. It was another pressure test. This time, they were not looking for it to fail. Oh well, you learn more from failure than success. There's more to tell about SpaceX, but that's not what this segment is all about. Moving on, Boeing has been having a bit of bother with Starliner. After the glitch that caused the premature end of its maiden flight, Review found other problems that could have potentially made for a catastrophic event. Recently, they released a report that said all of those problems could have been caught by a more thorough testing. Which leads me to ask, why wasn't there more thorough testing? They were given more money than SpaceX specifically because they said it was needed for quality assurance. So what gives? Come on, Boeing, don't be like that. You're just giving the conspiracy theorists all the more reason to mistrust you and, by extension, the whole of the space program. Gosh! SpaceX is looking like they're gonna win the capture the flag game, but boy do I want to see Starliner fly. Heck, I want to see everything being built start to fly. This setback is just so disappointing because it feels like it could have been avoided. NASA's InSight lander has detected Mars quakes. Mars is still seismically active. Here we thought the red planet was a dead world. It may not be quite so dead after all. And here's the kicker. They're not few and far between. InSight has detected hundreds of quakes from a volcanic area almost 1,600 kilometers, nearly 1,000 miles away. Unfortunately, they were fairly weak, none of them above magnitude 4.0. And that's not strong enough to penetrate the mantle or the core. We'll need something stronger to get an idea of Mars's interior. Two commercial satellites rendezvoused and docked for the first time in space recently. One was a communication satellite that was nearly out of fuel and was never designed to be serviced in any way, and the other was a special nude vehicle designed to give spacecraft additional lifespan. The MEV-1, or Mission Extension Vehicle, is meant to dock with a satellite that's near the end of its life and provide additional propulsion and station-keeping capabilities so it can keep doing what it's doing. Then it'll push the target satellite into a graveyard orbit, or re-enter if possible, after the contract is up. Photos came down from the process and they are stunning. This could really change the whole way we approach phasing out obsolete satellites. And finally, the Mars 2020 rover has a new name. NASA selected an essay by Alexander Mather, a 7th grade student from Virginia, to name the car-sized explorer. He chose to name the rover Perseverance. There were several other entries like Clarity, Courage, Ingenuity, and Promise, but Mather's was chosen because his essay says, Rovers are named for qualities we humans possess. But if rovers are to be the qualities of us as a race, he writes, we miss the most important thing, perseverance. That's only a small sample of his essay, and he's got a really damn good point. 
I look forward to hearing he's followed through on his dream to work at NASA one day. That's all for this round. Stay tuned for the next episode of For What It's Worth for more. Until next time, this is Smokescale Aquatus saying keep looking up, space fans. Hey, this is post-production Tugs just dropping in before we get you back to the talk to let you know that we actually would not have been able to make this particular episode if it wasn't for our, our Patreon sponsors. So we just wanted to thank everyone and say that, you know, you really do make a difference. We needed to get some specialized equipment that we've been wanting for a while to do this, and we were able to get it with your support. So thank you guys. Normally we, we read names every episode. Since this is kind of a special episode, we hadn't planned to, but we would be remiss if we didn't thank you at least for making this episode possible. So go hug your Patronus today or something. Uh, number 21. Number 21, the furry fandom is full, chock full of content creators, right? So very different from say the, the Star Wars fandom or the Harry Potter fandom, where in these fandoms, one person gets to make a decision about what counts as canon and not canon, right? In the Harry Potter universe, J.K. Rowling gets the final say of what isn't and isn't official Harry Potter. George Lucas, up, I guess up until he sold out, uh, was able to make decisions about what does and doesn't count as um, official canon Star Wars. In the furry fandom, though, it's very participatory. No one person gets to decide what counts and doesn't count as furry here. There's no furry gatekeeper. So we have thousands of creators, right? And the very act of joining the fandom and creating a fursona for yourself is an act of creation. We find that uh, in terms of visual artists, about one third of furries have tried their hands at some kind of artwork. Not everyone goes on to become a super well-known artist, but many furries have at least tried to do a little bit of visual art. Uh, we find that 29% of furries are writers of some sort. We find that 17% uh, of furries are musicians of one sort or another. And about 8% of furries create content on YouTube. So furries are very actively creating content for their fandom. Most furries create something for the fandom in one form or another. Even if they're not selling it, most furries engage in acts of creation of some sort. Um, and it's so diverse, and we've asked furries, hey, list your favorite content creator, your favorite content creators. We ended up with a list of well over 1,500 different content creators. You see some of the ones up here, these are the most popular ones um, around here, and you see just in the top 10 or 20, we have a mix of speakers and singers and artists and writers. So the fandom is an incredibly uh, diverse place with all kinds of content creators. No one or two people are like the arbiters or the most famous people in the fandom. It's very uh, dependent on where you're at, what part of the fandom you're interested in. Um, but yeah, furry fandom, very uh, spread out among lots of content creators. Now, okay, I have to stop and point out this one. Number 22 here, this fellow on the right, I believe uh, is from Germany, but they went over to one of those speed trap things and they managed to get the number 22 for it. Uh, I don't know how they did this. I don't know if they had a friend who was circling the block over and over again to try to get exactly 22, which was the number they were assigned to get, but I'm incredibly impressed with it, so I have to shout out to that kind of dedication for, for, for science. Um, in the same way that uh, fursuiters are a little bit different, 
furry artists are perhaps a little bit different from the average furry as well. So we've done studies looking at what is it that makes furry artists different from um, furries who aren't artists. And we find that again, women are overrepresented among artists, right? So there are far more women artists in the fandom uh, than you would expect just by um, population. We also tend to find that about 20% of artists in the fandom uh, are transgender or gender non-conforming, right? A number that's much higher than the general population. Someone had asked us one year, uh, are furries able to look at art and distinguish the gender of the artist from the art? We tested it. You might as well roll a die. Furries are god-awful at this task. You, you cannot figure out the gender of the artist just by looking at the arts. But it was a great question, right? It was something we could definitely test. Uh, most of the artists in the fandom were artists before they were furries, right? So they have years and years of doing arts, and then when they got into the furry fandom, they just kind of switched over to furry art. Uh, furry artists tend to congregate together. So if you're a furry artist, statistically half your friends in the fandom are also artists. Uh, and again, dispelling the misconception that the furry fandom is all about uh, fetishes and pornography, only about 18% of the artists that we studied said that most of the work that they produced was erotic in nature. And we're going to keep chipping away at some of those misconceptions as we go along. Number 23, so fact number 23, furries spend a lot of money. Furries spend an ungodly amount of money on their hobbies. So uh, maybe coming to mind first is the fursuit, right? So it's not uncommon at all to hear about fursuits that cost two, three, five, ten thousand dollars dollars $10,000. Uh, furries will happily spend that. Um, but furries spend money on all kinds of things besides fursuits. I see most of us are rocking our, our furry swag even this early in the morning. Uh, it's not uncommon to see furries with tails. About half of furries owns a, a tail. About one-third of furries owns some kind of a collar that they wear. 34% uh, wear furry clothing, furry t-shirts, uh, paws and ears also very prominently uh, displayed among what furries purchase for themselves. When it comes to actual money spent, we asked furries in the last year, how much have you spent, the blue bars, and the red bars, how much would you spend if you could? And we see here, for example, that digital art, right, uh, nowadays makes about three times as much as physical art does. Furries are much more interested in getting digital art rather than a physical uh, piece of art. Something that's changed, I think, over the last 15 or so years in the furry fandom, sometimes to the chagrin of some of the artists in the fandom. We also notice that uh, furries will spend a significant amount for erotic art in the furry fandom. Uh, it's not unheard of to hear of pieces going for, for hundreds or even thousands of dollars in some cases. Um, furries are good Patreons. We see here that uh, the average furry spends about $50 a year supporting artists through Patreon. Uh, but all of this spending on art kind of pales in comparison. So those first four bars are right there. You can see here that it pales in comparison to how much furries spend on things like conventions or paraphernalia, which often includes things like fursuits. Um, so furries spend a lot coming to conventions like this one. This is a big uh, part of the expense that furries incur when, when spending time in this fandom. And uh, furries, as it turns out, also kick the butt of anime fans when it comes to spending. So the blue bars are how much anime fans spend and the red bars are how much furries spend by comparison. And uh, yeah, across the board, furries just spend more money than anime fans do. So if you're wanting to get into a, wanting to make some money in a fandom, apparently the furry fandom is a, a good place to go. 
Uh, when it comes to conventions and furries spending money at conventions, we tend to see that at any given convention, about 70% of the attendees are regular attendees. About 10 or 20% are sponsors, 10% are super sponsors if given the chance, and about 5% are the, uh, the staffers running around working to make sure the con doesn't fall apart. So um, yeah, that's sort of your typical breakdown if you're thinking about starting a convention. These are the kinds of numbers you might expect to find. Uh, furries donate money as well. Furries spend a bunch of money donating to charities. We see here that about 60% of furries said that they donated money to some kind of animal-themed charity in the last year. So more furries than not are charitable when it comes to uh, helping out with, with animals. Uh, so number 24, I was very impressed by the way that this person took the time to actually cross-stitch the 24 uh, for their number. So number 24, believe it or not, furries do other things besides just being furry. Imagine that, right? Uh, we see here that when we ask furries about their different interests, you see a myriad of different interests. Most furries, it would appear, are gamers. We see that about half of furries are science fiction fans. We have artists and role players and anime fans rolled in. Uh, a lot of different groups kind of plant their flag in the furry fandom and call it home. So we don't all just sit around and talk about furry art all the time. Uh, and you can see around the world, this is very similar. Uh, we saw here that gamers are the biggest single demographic in the fandom. Uh, you can see here that across the world, this was the same as well. Gamers could be found uh, in pretty much every, uh, every fandom we, we studied around the world. We also tend to see that other popular things are manga, right? eating food, which I can totally get behind, um, paintings, so doing art, reading art, reading stories, and playing games tend to be what you find furries doing around the world, regardless of where you go. Uh, someone had asked us what kinds of media furries consume. So we asked about music. We found that furries are pretty big into rock and electronica, uh, techno, house. If you go to a furry dance, these are the kinds of music you, you hear at a furry dance uh, being played way too loud for my old ears. Um, not a lot of rap and R&B and country music at furry conventions. Furries, I guess, aren't a huge fan of those particular genres. They have good taste. <laughs> Shots fired. Um, we also can look at television. What kinds of TV shows do furries consume? And again, to no one's surprise, science fiction, cartoons, comedy, fantasy, not a lot of news and politics and reality television. Furries tend to stay away from, from reality shows, for example. And again, good taste prevails, I would argue. Uh, fun fact number 25, uh, furries spend most of their time interacting online. Right? The fandom is a predominantly online fandom, the fact, despite the fact that we're all spending time together at a convention today. So about 80% of furries around the world say they frequent some kind of furry-themed website, right? So um, there are regional furry groups. I grew up uh, largely in the Alberta furries group, so that's kind of my home group. But depending on where you are in North America, there are local regional furry groups. Um, about 80% of furries use some kind of instant messaging program, something like Telegram or Discord. Um, I'm going to poke a little bit of fun at Twitter here. This is a nice demonstration of what happens when the executives of companies are a little bit out of touch with the users. So Twitter famously asked the users of Twitter, please do not anthropomorphize the Twitter bird. And if you know something called psychological reactance, when you tell someone not to do, not to do something, well, the results kind of speak for themselves. Yeah. 
Yeah, so admit it, you knew this was going to happen, right? So apparently there are furries on Twitter, who knew? Right? Um, you can see here the most popular furry websites online. Uh, about 96% of the furries worldwide, at least in the English-speaking world, uh, were using Fur Affinity. Many furries using programs like Telegram, DeviantArt, E621. Uh, depending on where you go in the world, other sites tend to be more popular. So for example here, in terms of where do you get your furry artwork from, we see here that Fur Affinity is quite popular, Twitter is quite popular, Pixiv, DeviantArt tend to be quite popular around the world. When it comes to how you chat with other furries, we tend to see that Facebook uh, tends to be quite a popular one. Telegram, Twitter, all tend to be quite popular. Line, which I'd never heard of until I did this survey. Um, so, so Line, I guess, is quite popular in Southeast Asia. I'm sure someone will inform me about this after the talk. But yeah, so furries around the world communicate with each other predominantly online. Number 26, um, furry conventions exist around the world. So yes, furries talk to each other predominantly online, but you can go pretty much anywhere in the world and find examples of furry conventions. This is one uh, in Brazil, a furry convention in Brazil. So if you happen to be from South America, there's a convention that you can fly to out there. Um, we find that about one in three furries makes it out to some kind of local meetup, whether it's a restaurant meet or a bowling meet or everyone just go party at someone's house. About one in three furries does that. Uh, I like this furries versus Klingon bowling. Apparently that was a thing. I would have totally gone to that if given the chance. But about 50% of furries make it out to some kind of convention a year. Again, many of you are among that 50% uh, that there. And again, depending on where you are in the world, there is a furry convention near you. The, the, the Klingons beat you? I was there for that. That was like 11 years ago. Of course, everybody, all the furries are bowling in full gloves, mask, everything. The Klingons... The Klingons just have some stuff glued to their forehead, but the furries have a suit. Bit of a, bit of a difference in dexterity there. <laughs> I, I, thank you for telling me. I know now. <laughs> um, oops, where's it going with this? There we go. So in terms of the number of conventions, that furries uh, attend. We tend to find that most furries have attended at least one convention in their life. Only about three to four percent of furries have said they've never been to a convention before. So most furries make it out to a convention at some point. And you see some furries make it out to a great many conventions over the course of their life. I think this is my like 35th or 40th convention now, so uh, I'm in that, that near right demographic there. Uh, but again, depending on where you are, uh, there's probably a convention available for you. Vancouver's nice up there in the top left corner, dominating the, the Pacific coast, at least Canada-wise. Uh, number 27. So fun fact number 27. Uh, furries act differently at conventions than they act in real life. So many of you, when you go back to work on Monday, are probably going to act a little bit different than the way you act here at a furry convention. And we asked, what are some of these differences? Uh, the most popular ones were things like, well, I'm more physically affectionate. I cuddle and I touch and I hug more at a furry convention than I do out in the real world. Right? So it's very, very common to see furries hugging and being physically affectionate with one another at conventions. Uh, you wear your furry swag at furry conventions. So your shirts, your badges, your collars, your tails. Most folks only bust that out at a convention. Um, sharing furry content, sharing arts, jokes, memes, uh, contact information for artists and stuff, you tend to do that with other people at your convention. Uh, making animal noises, behaving like animals, 
Right? Furries tend to save that for the conventions. You don't meow and bark around your workplace when you go back on Monday. Uh, not if you value your job, at least. And uh, furries tend to report being more outgoing, more socializing uh, at conventions. Furries tend to be a lot more outgoing at conventions than they are in their day-to-day -day life. And we'll talk a little bit later about why that might be the case. Number 28, I don't know if this person just happened to have those balloons lying around their house or if they went out and got them for this picture, but I, I appreciate it. So number 28, post-con depression is absolutely a thing. How many of you, is this your first convention, your first furry convention ever? A few of you. So, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there's a thing called post-con depression, and it is a very real thing. So we've measured uh, furries attending a convention, and then a week after the convention, we got in touch with the same furries, and what you see is this elevation of negativity. Right? So in the week following a convention, you feel more bothered, your mind wanders more, you feel more depressed, everything feels like more of a chore, you feel less happy and a little more lonely. And part of that stems from the fact that when you're at a convention, you're surrounded by this high energy group of people who share your hobbies and your interests. And it kind of makes going back to the real world kind of sucky by comparison. So the treatment for that, by the way, if, if you're one of those folks, um, Stay in touch with the people you meet here. Find your local groups, get Telegram uh, uh, groups, or get in touch with people on Telegram. Keep in touch with these folks, because remember, most furries hang out online. Right? The convention is just one place that you get to meet folks. Uh, so make sure you keep in touch with folks, because they're the, they're the ones who will be there when you kind of hit that, that post-con depression a week later or so. Uh, number 29, uh, most furries, believe it or not, are not straight. If you've been in this fandom for a while, this will not be surprising information for you. Uh, we tend to find that the furry fandom is predominantly um, bisexual. That's sort of the biggest plurality here. We also see that uh, about 23-24% of the fandom identifies as lesbian or gay. Uh, more recently, we've started measuring asexual people in the fandom, find that it's about 6 or 7%. Um, the important thing is that if you are straight in the fandom, there's only about 20% of the fandom that would identify as being straight. So the fandom overwhelmingly uh, not heterosexual. Number 30, uh, many furries are in relationships, whether you're straight, whether you're gay, or you know, whatever you're interested in. Uh, the furry fandom can be a place where you can find what you're looking for, right? So we see here, for example, that around the world, um, there are a lot of single furries, a lot of furries who are looking. We tend to find rates between 50% and 75%. That's pretty comparable. So what we find in Western furry fandom. Uh, however, there are some major caveats to that. So for example, uh, males in the fandom are about three times more likely to be single than females in the fandom are. So this seems to suggest that there's at least some sex differences in terms of who's in a relationship, who's not. It also seems to matter whether you're straight or gay. As it turns out, if you're a gay furry, there's about an 80% chance that you met your partner through the furry fandom, right? So if you're a gay person, you will find a lot of gay people in and around the furry fandom. And hey, they tend to share a hobby with you. That's a pretty good place to find people who are like you. If you're straight and a male in the fandom and you're trying to find a partner, maybe go poach someone from the anime fandom or something and bring them in, get them interested in furries. <laughs> One of us. Uh, so number 31, uh, there are a lot of trans furries in the furry fandom. 
So we've asked about uh, sex and gender issues in a lot of different ways in the past. We've long gone are the days that we say, check a box, male or female. We don't, we don't do that. We try to understand all the nuance and subtlety in gender. And uh, depending on how you measure it, you get slightly different answers. But as a general rule, we tend to find that about 13% of the fandom identifies as transgender, gender non-conforming, uh, non-binary. This is much higher than the general population. Uh, in the general population, you tend to see less than 1% of people identify as trends or non-conforming. So yes, we tend to see a lot more of this in the furry fandom than in the general population, which leads us to number 32. LGBTQ furries get way more out of the fandom than just entertainment. So they get a whole lot of extra stuff from being in the fandom. So we find, for example, that members of sexual minorities in the furry fandom tend to say they use the fandom as more of an escape. Right, day-to-day -day life, they're getting picked on for being gay or for being asexual, but the fandom is a place where they can go and just sort of unwind from that, not be picked on for that. Um, members of the uh, LGBA uh, sort of contingency of the furry fandom, they tend to identify more strongly as a furry but also with the furry fandom and with their fursonas. So if you're gay or asexual, your fursona tends to mean a lot more to you. We also tend to find that uh, members of sexual minorities tend to give and seek help from the furry fandom a lot more than other furries do. Uh, and they also tend to feel more anxiety in their day-to-day -day lives. Again, uh, rather tragically, the real world is not always a kind place to a person who's gay or to a person who's bisexual. And so the fandom is often a place where you can go to get away from that anxiety. And in a related vein, you see much the same thing among transgender furries in the fandom. Among trans furries, you tend to see that they're twice as likely to be artists and also therians. Uh, they identify uh, with their personas more. Uh, in many cases, it's not uncommon to hear about uh, furries who are sort of uh, struggling with their gender identity to imbue their personas with the gender that they would like to be, right? So uh, you can sort of try on what it feels like to, to say have a more feminine role uh, through your persona to see if that fits. Is that a good fit for you or does that not quite jive with your own identity? Um, like with members of sexual minorities, transgender furries also tend to seek and receive and give help to the fandom more um, than other furries do. So number 33, uh, furries get picked on and bullied a lot. I probably don't need to tell most of the folks in this room, it was not hard for me to find pictures making fun of furries online. This is sort of the reality of being a furry. Um, in the, the Russian sample that we compared to, there was a lot of evidence for the kinds of assumptions people make about someone just because they're furry. We found that about two-thirds of Russian furries said that people assumed that they were a zoophile because they were a furry, that they had some kind of sexual attraction to animals. Uh, about half of them said that people assumed they had a mental disorder because they were furry. About 40% said that people assumed they were gay just because they were furry. About 40% said people assumed they were a sexual deviant, and about 36% said that they uh, were considered a corrupter of the youth, right? That there's something unwholesome about you wearing that suit. You're just trying to corrupt young people uh, with your presence. These are the kinds of assumptions people made about furries. And sure enough, in our North American samples, we tend to find that compared to other fan groups, uh, online anime groups, uh, convention-going anime fans, and sports fans, 
furries were the ones who were the most likely to report. Eh, if people found out what I was interested in, they'd be really, un they'd be not okay with it. They expected the most disapproval from society. And as a result, furries were the least likely of the groups to say that they would tell other people about the group that they were a part of. So this sort of hits home, this picture hits home with a lot of furries, this idea that for many furries, it's something that they have to play close to the chest. They have to hide the fact that they're a furry from their families, from their friends, from their workplaces, especially if you work with children, especially if you work in the military or the police, if you're running for public office. There have been cases where people running for public office have essentially lost their job because it got out that they were a furry. Right? Just a few years ago, there was a story of that. We tend to find that furries, compared to non-furries, are much more likely to have been bullied. Right? Uh, especially in those formative years between the ages of 11 and 18, where you're starting to ask these big questions about who am I and how do I fit into this world. And it's during that time that furries experience the most bullying. Uh, about 62% of furries experience bullying during this time, which is considerably more than the 40% of the average population who experiences bullying during this time. So furries experience significantly more bullying, and I'm not just talking about being called names. We're talking about getting beaten up, being physically attacked, just because you're different. And it gets even worse, because remember, about 80% of furries are LGBTQ+. So that's kind of a double whammy. You're already getting picked on and bullied uh, for being a little bit different. So now tack onto it the fact that your hobby is just a little bit too weird. And yeah, furries get more than their fair share of bullying. <clears throat> we can see here that uh, in the sample of Russian furries, uh, most furries said that they were teased, that they've been teased before, that they've been threatened before. Uh, about half of furries say they've been physically hurt, experienced property damage, they've been ostracized, they've had lies and rumors spread about them just because they were a furry. So most furries can recognize at least some of this kind of bullying at some points in their life. One of the studies we recently conducted tapped into this idea, trying to understand, might it be the case that this bullying, this history of being ostracized and bullied, may change the way you view animals, the way you understand animals? Could it be that something about being bullied may drive you towards animals or media that features animals, perhaps because you have this low impression of humans? And sure enough, we found some evidence that the more bullied you were as a kid, the more likely you were to anthropomorphize animals in the world around you. And the more you did that, the more you started to see animals as being part of the same group as you and to actually include animals in your sense of self, to see, you know, I identify more with animals than with people some days. Not a far cry, not a, a stretch of the imagination if you're a person who has fairly bad experiences with people as a whole bullying you. Number 34, uh, the furry phantom shelters, protects, and ultimately saves furries' lives. So what we know from research on bullying is that one of the most wretched things you can do to someone is to bully them. Bullied people are much more likely to have low self-esteem, to have high anxiety issues. It screws a person up to be constantly exposed to bullying. And we know from our research that furries have this track record of being way more bullied than the average person. So by all accounts, furries should be really screwed up as a group. And yet, when we studied furries and we've compared furries to the average non-furry, 
we don't see differences when it comes to their self-esteem, their self-reported life satisfaction, the quality of their relationships. Furries don't look any different from anyone else, despite the fact that they should because of all this bullying. So what's going on? What's stopping furries from going down this dark path? And the answer is the fandom. The answer is the fact that furries find solace and comfort and social support through the furry fandom. One of the best predictors of how well you're gonna cope with life, of how resilient you're gonna be in the face of, of adversity, in the face of setbacks, is do you have people who you can call and who can be there for you when the chips are down? And furries absolutely have that. The fandom becomes that so source of social support for them. It's what's getting them through a history of being bullied and helping them to see that they're a person of value. We see here that about half of furries' friends are furries themselves. And it's not unique to furries, regardless of the fan group you're in, people turn to their fan groups for social support to help them cope with their lives. We've seen, for example, that the more time you spend in the furry fandom, the more efficacy you feel, the more you feel like you're a person who can get things done, you're a person who, who has power and control over your life. Spending more time in the fandom tends to be associated with more life satisfaction, with being a happier person. And we have this idea called the scaffolding hypothesis, which suggests that for many furries, the fandom isn't just a, a fun little hobby, although it's that too, but it's satisfying these deep and important psychological needs for them. Right? It's helping keeping them going. It's helping them to, to scratch whatever itch they need, whether it's to find a safe place to be themselves, whether it's to find and make friends, whether it's to learn some social skills. They're getting that from the fandom. We published a paper in a psychological or a, a health, there we go, the, the Health and Social Work Journal. And uh, we published on this very topic of trying to help clinicians understand that for many furries, the fandom itself is a tremendous source of support for them. And uh, this quote from this paper really says it better than I ever could. This was an actual furry in one of our studies who said, if you feel unaccepted, if you've contemplated suicide, I've had those dark times. I was seriously contemplating it, and once I found the fandom, it saved me. I want people to know that we may seem weird, but there's always someone to help and accept you here. And that's really the story behind the furry fandom, isn't it? The source of social supports that furries get from it. That's what drives furries to keep coming back to conventions, to keep hanging out with their local groups. Speaking to this, number 35, which I love because it's you know, covered in ponies, um, the sense of community that the fandom provides is really the number one reason why most furries are here. So when we ask furries, what are, you, what are you really here for? Which of these things is the actual reason why you're here? We see all kinds of reasons, right? Including the media's favorite, oh, it's, they're here for the porn, they're here for the sex. That pales in comparison to the number one reason, even more important than the art and the content itself, is the sense of community and belonging that the fandom provides. That's why furries are here. And that's not unique to just North American furries or European furries. Around the world we find this as well. We tend to find that compared to other fan groups, furries are the most strongly identified with their community. Number 36. Furries as a group tend to be fairly young. Right? Something I'm becoming more keenly aware of as I get older and older uh, than the median age of the average furry. Uh, so this is some data that we didn't collect because in our studies we're not allowed to study minors. 
So others who've collected data tend to show the phantom is predominantly in their, their late teens, early 20s. And you can see where our data starts here pretty much lines up with that data. Furries tend to be a fairly young person's game. And as you get older, um, again, very depressing as I'm right around here right now, uh, you see that uh, you become increasingly in a minority as you get older. Which does not mean there aren't furries who are 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, um, but they tend to be sort of overshadowed by the vast number of younger folks in this fandom. Number 37, uh, ageism is a thing in this fandom. So we had uh, a furry ask us one time, do the old folks treat the younger folks differently in the fandom and vice versa? Uh, and the answer is yes, there is evidence of ageism in the fandom. What we see here in this study was we asked furries of different age groups, how much would you like to hang out with furries of different ages? So if you look at the blue bar, this is furries uh, who are under the age of 24. And what you find is furries under the age of 24 are perfectly happy to hang out with furries 18 years old, 25 years old. But as you get older, there's a drop off, right? 18, 20, 22 year old furries don't want to be hanging out with 50 year old furries. Right? You might say, well, it's ageism, but it also works in reverse. Right? So the furries who were over the age of 35, they were pretty okay with hanging out with the 35-year-old furries and the 25-year-old furries and the 55-year-old furries, but not terribly keen to hang out with the 18-year-old furries. We don't think that this is mean-spirited ageism. We don't think this is a matter of, oh, you're old, oh, you're young, so we don't like you. Uh, it has a lot more to do with this idea of different lived experience. Right? So if you're a 50-year-old, you have a very different experience from that of an 18-year-old. 18-year-olds right? are going to meet up and talk about, you know, oh, I'm moving into my own apartment soon, and oh, I got my first real job. Uh, the 55-year-olds are going to be talking about their mortgage, their back hurting, and you know, getting close to retirement. You have very different things you're conversing about, even the kind of media that you consume. Right? If you've been in the fandom for 30 years, you were watching very different stuff than an 18-year-old furry is watching. You just have less cultural touchstones to draw upon for comparison. Right? You just liked different stuff, and so you'll tend to cluster around people who have a similar experience to you. So we don't think it's mean-spirited ageism, but there's definitely some measurable uh, difference in whether or not you're willing to hang out with people of certain ages. And what it seems to suggest is that if you're 25 years old, you're in that sweet spot where everyone wants to hang out with you. And as you get further from that, the phantom just becomes a more uh, depressing, depressing place for you. So it just gets worse. So number 38. Number 38. The phantom itself isn't getting older, which is kind of a weird statement to say. Um, the people in the fandom get older, but the fandom itself doesn't really get older. Here's what I mean. I love this data. This is probably my favorite figure from all of the figures we've generated over the last 10 years. So as I mentioned, we've done research on bronies. We've also done research on furries. This is the average age of these phantoms over about a six or seven year period. Now, if you look at the bronies, back in 2012, the average age of the average brony was about 21 and a half. And over about six years, the average brony got about four years older. Right? What this suggests is that bronies kind of got on the, the, the My Little Pony train early on, and then there, were no, there was no new blood. Right? If, if by, by season two or three, if you weren't on that train, you kind of missed the train. So you see the fandom is the same group of people getting older over time. But now look at the furry fandom. Over that same six-year period, 
the furry phantom grew about one year in age. What this means is a combination of older furries kind of leave the phantom, but more importantly, lots and lots of younger furries are pouring into the phantom, which kind of suppresses the average age. Right? So even as you get older, the phantom just stays fairly young because there's a ton of younger folks coming into the phantom. Right? And I, I see people nodding their heads. As you walk around the convention space, you'll notice lots of furries who are younger than you, who weren't here last year. Right? Every time a film like Zootopia comes out, the fandom sees this new rush of furries uh, that comes in and keeps the age of the fandom fairly young. Number 39. Um, furries, demographically, have all sorts of religious beliefs. We've asked about religion. We tend to find, this is uh, in American furries that we've studied, we tend to find about a quarter of them are Christian, about a third of them are atheist or agnostic. Uh, you tend to see about 10 to 11 percent are pagan uh, or Wiccan. We tend to see a smattering of Judaism, Buddhism, uh, Satanism. About 25 percent take advantage of when you give them an empty space. They'll write anything. But uh, furs are kind of all over the board in terms of their religious beliefs. And that's not just here in North America. <clears throat> Around the world, you tend to see that furries' beliefs are largely dictated by what the country they're in happens to believe. So depending on the country you're in, you might see high proportions of atheism. You might see high proportions of, of Islam or high proportions of Buddhism. Right? So depending on where you go in the world, the religion of the area tends to affect the, the furries who are there. So furry tends to exist kind of outside of a person's religious belief, and furries from all kinds of religious beliefs tend to get along pretty well in this fandom space. Uh, number 40. Uh, furries as a group tend to be politically on the liberal side of things. I even managed to, uh, to find this. I don't know if there was actually a furry party of Australia, but I love their slogan that it makes a certain kind of fuzzy logic, and they would ha absolutely have my vote. Uh, what we see here, because there was a big demand for us to sort of study the politics of the furry fandom. So this was a sample taken down in Texas, right? So keep that in mind, the location. This was Texas furries. And even among Texas furries, we tended to see overwhelmingly furries tended to lean quite liberal. There was not a huge body of uh, uh, Republican or conservative furries uh, among the group, even in Texas, which is quite a, quite a conservative place to begin with. We also see uh, that when it comes to other elements of the fandom, other groups you could identify with, the one that we get asked about a lot is Nazi furs. People say, oh, there's this, this plague of Nazi furs in the fandom. Uh, thankfully, in a sample of almost 400 furries, we couldn't find a single Nazi fur. Darn, what a shame. Uh, I can tell we're all broken up about this idea. Uh, in terms of social beliefs, we tend to find that on a scale from very socially, socially conservative, sorry, socially liberal to socially conservative, furries tend to lean quite heavily towards the liberal side of things. This kind of makes sense. In a fandom that's very LGBTQ+, you'd expect people to be pretty okay with things like transgender rights, to be okay with things like gay marriage. So not terribly surprising there. When it comes to economic issues, we tend to see that furries are kind of down the middle, somewhere between being very economically liberal and very economically conservative. Uh, when it comes to attitudes towards state power, furries don't tend to slant too much to one side or another of total anarchy versus total state control. Uh, furries tend to be on the side of free speech and less on the side of controlling or restricting free speech. Uh, number 41, 
Fun fact number 41. Uh, furry drama is also totally a thing. Uh, some of you, if you follow the Twitters, might be familiar with this little picture right here. This is kind of a uh, poodling is apparently the hot button issue right now that is dividing the furry fandom. But uh, we've actually, we're studying, we're currently writing up a scientific paper on the subject of furry drama. I'm doing it. I'm making it a thing. Um, so if you want to know scientifically what makes drama drama, here it is in a nutshell. It takes three things to make drama. First, there has to be some kind of a conflict between two or more people. People have to have some kind of a fight, some kind of a grudge with each other. This grudge gets blown out of proportion, right? So here's a little fight and it turned into something way bigger than it had any business being. And it tends to take place in public, either online or with a whole bunch of people watching. And that combination of things is what tends to make a perfect storm of drama appear. This is where drama tends to, to spark in the furry fandom. Someone has a fight and 50 million people talk about it on Twitter. And it's easy to laugh at drama. There's all kinds of memes in the fandom about how, oh, drama is just a part of the furry fandom. Ha ha ha, lol, drama llama. What I want to suggest is that we should perhaps take drama a little bit more seriously. When we asked furries who had left the fandom, what caused you to leave the fandom? Drama was the second biggest reason. Drama's causing furries to leave the fandom. So it's really easy to kind of have a chuckle and say, oh, that's silly drama, but it's actually causing folks to leave. So maybe we should be more aware of the drama that's in our fandom and work towards trying to reduce it. And there are things you can do to reduce it. Um, one of the things being don't spread gossip, right? When you see, the, when you see 500 people dogpiling on someone on Twitter, do you really need to be 501? Do you really need to, to spread this, this conflict and make sure everyone hears about it? These kinds of things may help to keep drama to a minimum in the fandom. We've also recently uh, submitted a paper for publication looking at some of the outcomes of drama, specifically looking at gatekeeping and elitism, this idea that some furries think they're better than others. Some furries think that they have the right to tell other furries, get out of my fandom, you don't belong in this fandom. And what we found is that um, fanship, so being, you know, considering yourself to, to be a real furry, that's associated with, with thinking of yourself as really, really big and looking down on other furries. But a sense of community, fandom, so identifying with other furries, that tends to have sort of the opposite effect. It tends to suppress some of these elitist beliefs. And you might say, well, what's so bad about thinking you're better than other furries? The problem is that to the extent that you think you're better than others and you look down at other furries, you're also more likely to gatekeep. You're more likely to say things like, well, this group and this group don't belong in my fandom. And oh, if you haven't been around for at least this long, you can't call yourself a real furry. So these things actually matter, right? This sort of elitism does happen in the fandom and we can predict when it's going to happen. Number 42, uh, furries assume that problem behavior is more common than it actually is, right? This might feed into why we see so much drama in the fandom. Uh, part of it is because when you ask furries, hey, how much problem behavior do you engage in? and then say, how much problem behavior do you think the average furry engages in? There's a huge mismatch. So the blue bars are the actual numbers. This is how much furries actually engaged in drinking or smoking or partying or drug use or risky sex. 
And what you see is the orange bars are how much furries thought other furries were doing it. And for every one of these categories, you see furries expect other furries to be doing it way more than they actually are. So at least some of this drama may be stemming from seeing problems where there aren't actually problems, expecting things to be worse than they actually are. Number 43, uh, furries are not deviants, despite the fact that uh, the media and furries themselves may latch onto this idea. So statistically, yes, furries are deviants in the sense that we are rare, we are statistically unusual, perhaps one in 5,000 or one in 10,000 people is a furry. So in that sense, we're deviants. However, there's no evidence to suggest that furries are any more likely to be violent, any more likely to be criminals. There's no evidence to suggest that furries are maladjusted, that furries have mental illnesses at higher rates. Uh, in fact, there's evidence that suggests that perhaps furries may even be lower in rates of anxiety and depression than the general population. Although we do tend to find higher rates of people on the autism spectrum in the furry fandom. Now, we don't think this is unique to the furry fandom. And in fact, in many of the other fandoms we've studied, we tend to find higher rates of people on the spectrum. And if you're wondering why, it helps to go back and look at the definition of what it means to be on the autism spectrum. One of the criteria is a strong, focused, narrow uh, interest in a specific topic. What is a fan? A person with a strong, narrow, focused interest in a specific topic. We think as more and more fan research develops, there's going to be more realization that people with autism are more drawn to fan cultures in general. So we don't think this is a unique or defining feature of the furry fandom specifically. Uh, there is a stereotype that exists about furries as being uh, maladjusted, they can't function in the world, they live in their parents' basements. And there's a modicum, there's a small amount of truth to that. You can see that among furries under the age of 24, most of them live in their parents' basements. However, the big caveat on that is that the furry fan, remember, is young, right? And we don't think this is a product of being a furry. We think it's a product of being young. The economy took a tank uh, back in 2008, and it's still recovering. It's still harder and harder for younger people to move out on their own. In fact, we can see the average 18-year-old furry makes less than $10,000 a year. It's pretty hard to move out on your own when you're only making about $10,000 a year. So we don't think it's because furries are lazy or furries are maladjusted. We think it's because furries as a group tend to be fairly young, and young folks just aren't moving out of their parents' house, furry or otherwise. Uh, we tend to find that when it comes to socioeconomic status, what class you're in, furries tend to be fairly middle class, right? So there's not a lot of hyper, hyper rich furries, also not a lot of terribly, terribly poor furries. Furries tend to find themselves falling somewhere into the working or middle class. Uh, number 44, furries, tremendous nerds. If you want to understand furry in a nutshell, we are huge nerds. I mean, look at the number of people who came here on a Saturday morning to listen to some guy in a lab coat talk about stats. We're kind of nerds. Yeah. I can clap for that. So we find, we find that most furries uh, either have aspirations to go to college or are currently in college or have completed some kind of college or post-secondary education. Most furries go to some kind of college. And in fact, 
Uh, among furries, when you ask them, what kinds of grades did you get the last time you were in school, there's a lot of high Bs and low As in the furry fandom. The fandom is full of fairly bright people. It's not a surprise that so many furries go into the hard sciences, go into uh, engineering, go into math and programming and computing science courses, because furries tend to be pretty bright. Uh, so this is the part of the lecture where I mentioned that we're going to be getting into uh, research on pornography and sexuality. So if you are with a little one or if you perhaps would like to not to be exposed, uh, there's nothing pornographic I'm going to show, but we are going to go into that. So if you prefer not to hear it or prefer not to expose someone to it, sort of my warning now. So I'll give you all a minute. Cool. All right. This is the point where you're no longer allowed to get mad at me because I'm talking about porn. So, all right. So, number 45, fun fact number 45. Uh, the furry fandom uh, is a fandom for most folks, but for at least a small percentage of furries, it would be accurate to describe it as a fetish. So we see here, when we ask furries on a one to seven scale, to what extent is furry a fetish for you? We tend to find uh, you, the red bar you, we tend to find that for perhaps call it 15, 20% of furries, they say, yeah, it's, it's mostly a fetish for me. Most furries tend to be on the other side of the scale, saying, nah, not really a fetish for me. I'm here for other reasons, but not because it's a fetish. Number 46, furries look at porn. Gasp. Right? <laughs> pornography exists, and furries do, in fact, look at that pornography. Uh, in fact, compared to other fan cultures, the furry fandom probably has more erotic content than other fan cultures do. We see that it, uh, it beats out the anime fandom quite handily in that respect. So yes, pornography exists in the fandom. Uh, about 96% of men in the fandom look at furry-themed pornography, and about 17% say the only porn they look at is furry porn. Uh, and about 78% of women in the fandom say they look at furry-themed pornography. We find that there are some differences in terms of their attitudes towards porn. Men in the fandom tend to be pretty okay with porn in general. Women in the fandom tend to be a little bit more divided on the subject of porn, often because of things like the kinds of trends you see or the kinds of norms that you see in pornography. Um, so this is some data that uh, we recently replicated. There was a publication about a year ago that came out that uh, very strongly mischaracterized furries and furry sexuality. So on this scale, for example, on a 1 to 10 scale, how attracted are you to anthropomorphic animal characters? And Furry said, yes, I think that's great. I think it's fantastic. Uh, this one right here, how attracted are you to the idea of being an anthropomorphic animal character? Furries loved that. They thought that was great. This one, how attracted are you to real-life animals? This is the sticky wicket right here. So our numbers largely replicated numbers of a study that was done about a year ago. What I take issue with in this study and what I'm working to correct right now is how this data was reported. In the paper, they said, okay, 60% of furries said one out of 10 on that. So everyone who didn't say one out of 10 is therefore sexually attracted to animals. So they said, based on this data, 40% of furries are sexually attracted to animals. That is how that data was reported in a scientific journal article. Hopefully you realize that's a kind of a tortured treatment of this data. Right? It gives the wrong impression. So I'm currently working right now to publish an article that properly discusses this data, that properly explains 
what this data actually shows and dispels that kind of a misconception. Your tax dollars at work. <laughs> Number 47. Furries like porn, but they're not predominantly motivated by the existence of porn in the fandom. What do I mean by that? Well, when you ask furries, okay, you like arts. Do you only like the pornographic art or do you only like the non-pornographic arts? So right down the middle is no strong preference. To the right is I only really look at the porn. To the left is I only really look at non-porn. And what you see is that furries are kind of just down the middle. Furries just like furry arts. And yeah, if it's got some erotic content to it, so be it. But they just like furry content in and of itself. I often use the example of science fiction movies. The Terminator, one of my favorite movies of all time. It has a, a sex scene in it. Right? If you like science fiction stories about robots and you have a, a, a normal human sex drive, then what's better in your story about killer robots than a sex scene? Right? That's kind of the same thing for furries. You like media in general and hey, you have an active sex drive, so why not combine the two? We do this all the time in other contexts, but we don't bat an eye at it. For example, if you go to a, a convenience store and you buy a car magazine, what's usually draped across the hood of the car magazine? Some attractive supermodel, right? We wouldn't say this person has a car fetish or this person wants to have sex with the car, right? They have a healthy sex drive, they have an interest in cars, and we as humans combine these interests all the time. So when you ask furries straight up, is porn the reason you're here? Again, for about 10, maybe 15% of furries, they're probably here just for the porn. These furries, you would say, it's probably a fetish. But for the rest of furries, that's not really the reason they're here, right? It's there, they might look at it, but that's not what drives them to be furry in the first place. And that's something that the media often mistakes or often doesn't take into account. Um, and this isn't just unique in the North American furry fandom. So around the world, you see as well, the number one reason is the artwork, the community, the activities, the relationships. Only in Japan, again, I said Japan's kind of the odd one out. In Japan, it might be likely to say that many furries, or perhaps even most furries in Japan, have at least some fetishistic interests in the furry fandom. And I want to make clear, by the way, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a furry fetish. That's just not what most furries are here for. Right? It would be inaccurate based on the data to suggest that furries are here because of some kind of fetish. This, this is my big structural equation model that I don't want to explain in too much detail, but the gist of it is uh, I built a model testing whether or not calling yourself a furry is driven by the sexual part of the fandom or the non-sexual part of the fandom. And overwhelmingly, see this number is 0.81, whereas the sex number is 0.02. Yeah, overwhelmingly, being a furry is driven by the non-sexual parts, not by sexual attraction to anything. Number 48. I love the cute suits from around the world. Number 48. Um, furries are very open about their sexuality, about their fetishes, about their kinks. In fact, we've asked different fan groups, hey, hypothetically speaking, not even on this survey, but in the future, if you were to do a survey, would you be honest? in telling us about your, your kinks and your interests. And what we found is that furries on a seven point scale said six. Yeah, tell you everything you want to know, doc. Uh, bronies and anime fans straight up said, yeah, we'd lie to you. <laughs> I wouldn't tell you what I'm interested in. Which can make it very difficult 
to study and compare these groups. Because let's say we find more kinks in the furry fandom. Is it because there's actually more kinks in the furry fandom? Or is it because the other groups are lying about their kinks? It's one of the conundrums you run into. And if you're interested in fetishes and kinks, we did ask the furry fandom, list off your fetishes and kinks. We wound up with hundreds of unique kinks and fetishes. I kind of conglomerated them all into one slide, so there you go. Uh, depending on your interest, that's the prevalence of it there. I wanted to draw your attention to one part in particular, this number down here, zoophilia, 6.89%. Right? So about 7% of furries would describe themselves as having some zoophilic interest, sexual attraction to animals. And you might say, oh my gosh, that sounds pretty high. In the general population, that number is between 5 and 10%. So furries didn't invent zoophilia. Zoophilia was around long before furries came around. Plenty of non-furries engage in zoophilia. It is not a defining feature of the furry fandom, despite the fact that the media will continue to maintain these are people with some kind of weird attraction to animals. Number 49. There is a place, if you like all of this information, and as I said earlier, there's a place you can go to learn more about furries. So here's me shamelessly self-promoting our book again. If you go to firstscience.com, you can download our book and see all of this data made available there. Uh, win internet arguments, uh, uh, learn everything you want to know about furries, and more, all this data will be posted there as well. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, that's my email address right there. Uh, you can follow us uh, at First Science. We're trying to get more Twitter followers so we can get more grant money from the Canadian government. So, Following us at, at First Science not only helps you keep abreast of all of our new research, but you also help us to hopefully continue doing this research in the future. Uh, and number 50, uh, this one is perhaps the most important fact of all. Uh, furry audiences really are the best audiences. So thank you very much for allowing me to, to eat up some of your Saturday morning with some of my horrible, nerdy uh, statistics. So thank you very much. Uh, and there should be time for some Q&A. Uh, what time is it right now? 11.30? So what I'll do is if anyone wants to take off for something, I'll give you a minute to take off, uh, and then we'll do sort of a Q&A. I think we'll have a microphone set up, and folks can just sort of come up to the microphone and ask questions. Um, I'll also be sort of meandering around, so if you see me around the con, feel free to, to stop me and ask questions. Thank you very much for attending. <laughs>